All right, if you'll join me in the book of Leviticus, chapter 6, as we continue our way through the book of Leviticus together, this book, again, focusing really on the holiness of God and particularly, sort of as we said at the beginning of our study, an instruction manual for worship, uh, how the children of Israel were to conduct themselves in worship, how they were to approach God how they were to bring their offerings to the Lord on his terms, not to just come on their terms and offer to God whatever they felt was the right way or they didn't have the option of just approaching God in whatever way they deemed was best, but there was a prescribed way. Uh, there was a clear manner in which God who is holy was to be approached. And really this book in a lot of ways gives us a lot of insights in regards to worship. Uh, particularly how they worshipped in the time of the uh, Old Testament, the congregation of Israel. And we've been looking thus far in the first five chapters at different types of offerings uh, that were to be made. We looked at the peace offering. We looked at the burnt offering uh, the grain offering, and then particularly in our last time together in chapters 4 and 5, we were looking at the sin offering and the trespass offering. And we saw similarities among these in the way that they were to be brought. And uh, the worshiper was to put their hand on the animal's head as a form of identification or transference, identifying with the offering that then is in a sacrificial substitutional way would be offered by the priest there on their behalf and uh, we looked at some of these different instructions and as we come sort of to the end of, of those offerings being described we're sort of coming to the tail end now of the trespass offering as we begin chapter 6 and you, you'll notice in chapter 6 and 7 uh, we do find some reiteration in some ways we'll take notice that the instructions given here in these chapters really give some supplemental details to things that we've already studied in chapters 1 through 5, so we'll try and do our best not to uh, get bogged down in some of the tedious details. There is a lot of repetition and reiteration, but uh, sheep need that. <laughs> uh, I need that, I know. I, it seems to me that the best way that I learn is by repetition, 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 and it's amazing how the Lord can speak to me about something today, uh, and in my stubbornness and my rebellion, that uh, if he doesn't run me tomorrow, I can very quickly start uh, carving my way back down the same foolish path once again. So it's good uh, to have reminders, and in these chapters, really what we see is God giving some additional and supplemental instructions particularly to the priest. We'll see, in fact, as we get to chapter 6, verse 9 there, where the Lord says, command Aaron and his sons, that is the priest. The first five chapters seem to be given collectively to the congregation, to the people themselves. These seem to be some supplemental additional instructions to the actual priests themselves who are officiating in these offerings to make sure that they did things very clearly and they had very adequate instructions regarding them. So look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or lying about a pledge or about some robbery that had taken place, or if he's extorted from his neighbor, taken advantage of or oppressed in some way, uh, extorting financially, or if he's found what was lost and he lies concerning it and swears falsely in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty 
that he shall restore what was stolen or the thing which is extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth or 20% more to it, making restitution, and then give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. And so the priest, verse 7, shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of those things which he may have done in which he trespasses. So we sort of continue from where we left off there in chapter 5, dealing with this issue of the trespass offering. And again, very picturesque of uh, what we would envision there, uh, trespassing. We post signs, no trespassing, private property. Again, the, the boundaries are clearly marked, but yet we push past the boundaries. We, we become guilty of trespassing by violating what are clearly known boundaries. And in chapter 5, as we left off last time, we looked at trespasses in regards to the holy things. That is, in some way, uh, trespassing in regards to the things that were used for the system of worship and the gathering of God's people, that there could be that offense. As we come to chapter 6 now, we see another reference to another trespass, and that, it seems, trespassing in the area of personal offenses relationally among other people among humanity you notice in chapter six here in the verses that we read together the reference here is says verse two a person sinning and committing a trespass against the lord by notice lying to his neighbor stealing in a sense what was given to him for safekeeping and saying well yeah i really have no idea what's happened uh to that uh horse that you lent me i mean yes i ride it every weekend but i i really have no idea what took place and it just different forms of dishonesty and lying and cheating and stealing extorting from one another robbing somehow it says verse two as a thief all typical and common ways and isn't it interesting how well god knows us that he realizes that we violate what are clearly known boundaries, not just in his word, but in our own conscience. Our, you know, our own conscience testifies to us that it's flat out wrong to lie to somebody. I don't know anybody, unless your conscience is pretty seared, that can sit there and tell somebody, whether it be a bold-faced lie or just a, a little subtle distortion or a deception. And, and we do it so frequently, even in regards to, is everything okay between you and I? Yeah, everything's fine. When the reality is, is no, I'm actually so irritated with you, but I don't like confrontation, so I don't want to talk about it. Or I'm actually so upset with you, but, but I don't really want to deal with it right now. And in the most subtle ways to the most grievous ways, we're so prone to be dishonest, to lie. We're prone to rob and to steal things that don't belong to us from one another, personal property or taking advantage of people. I mean, there are so many ways that we can steal from one another in relationships, taking things from one another that don't belong to us or that belong to someone else. Again, whether it's in immoral you know, practices, marital infidelity, or just stealing property, or whatever all these kind of things can be. I mean, we become guilty of all of these violations at times, lying and cheating and stealing. And, and God knows this, so he writes it right into his word. He says, look, when you trespass in this way, and notice with me, first of all, there in verse 2, when you look at these things, that God is telling us very clearly that when hurtful and wrong things are done to other people, God says, please realize that is a sin against the Lord. 
And I want you to notice that these two are inseparable. Notice verse 2, if a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor, by stealing from his neighbor, by doing something hurtful or, or, or painful in a relationship that's wrong treatment, God says, look, these two are inseparable. When you do that to someone else, to someone created in my image, in my likeness, whom I care and I love, God says, that's offensive to me. God says, when you hurt someone, you mistreat someone, when this happens, wrong things done towards others, God says, look, it's not just an offense against them or a violation of the horizontal relationship. God says, it's sin against me. Interesting, when David remember was guilty of uh, adultery with Bathsheba and then in the whole cover-up effort remember he murdered Uriah uh, his uh, uh, her husband but when David was pouring out in his confession before the Lord certainly David had a sense of remorse and guilt that he knew that what he had done was wrong with Bathsheba and that that was inappropriate in that way and that it was wrong that he took another man's life but David said in that psalm when he's praying Psalm 51 he says against thee and thee only God have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight and David had that sense this is sin this is sin against the Lord but it's also sin on the horizontal and here God says there's no separation because God loves humanity so when we hurt one another and rob and rip and uh, you know cheat one another and, and are dishonest with one another, God says, look, you may think that only is hurting another person, but God says, that's also offensive to me. It's sin, and God wants us to acknowledge it for what it is. He says, when you sin or commit a trespass against the Lord, because that's our first accountability, by lying to your neighbor or stealing or robbing in some way, he says, then you are to bring your trespass offering. And notice as they brought the trespass offering, as we looked at last time, a part of the trespass offering, secondarily note in verse 4 and in verse 5, we see this word that you were, when you were guilty of this, to restore what had been stolen or to restore what had been extorted or taken as safekeeping or the thing in which you had lied about. He says, verse 5, not only were you to restore its full value, but you were also to add one-fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day that you brought your trespass offering. The idea is, as we said last week, is that God wanted restitution. From God's perspective, he says, listen, when you do something that is hurtful or destructive as a worshiper to someone else, God says, it's not enough to just come to me and say, well, I'm sorry about that, God. I, con I confess, God. I, I apologize. It was wrong. And then just go along your merry way and, and play church. God says, no. Th there's something that's missing. And God says, that's restitution. God says that's restoration. In essence, what God was teaching the children of Israel is it's not enough to just come to the altar and bring your offering and say, here, Lord, I'm sorry, I know what I did was wrong. That's a part of the process, certainly. But God says if you want full healing and full liberation from the guilt that we carry around when we do these things, God says, then you need to go make restitution to the person whom you wronged. You need to go make things right, God was saying. The worshiper was not just to seek forgiveness of God alone, but to make things right with the other person too. And this is so important because so many times this is a dangerous area that we overlook as worshipers of the Lord, as no doubt they could be guilty of the same. See, the reality is this, is that when a person's willing to come and make restitution, or, or, or whatever, and however that unfolds, and I think it unfolds differently in each situation, to just go and make things right and to restore back, 
You know what that evidence is? When somebody's willing to do that, that's a clear demonstration that there's genuine repentance. Because it's very easy to just say, God, I'm sorry, I know it was wrong, and, and then just, like I said, go on your merry way and act like, well, we'll just brush them, or God, I'm sorry, okay, and let's just move forward. When somebody's genuinely repentant, it'll be manifested by not only confession and a brokenheartedness before the Lord, but it will also be observable by their outward repentance and obedience to say, this is not right until I go make it right until I go settle things, until I go resolve things, until I demonstrate my repentance by going and restoring. And notice, they weren't to just give back. They were to give back an extra 20%. The idea is a measure of humble, sincere, look, no cost is too much. Whatever it takes to make things right, I, I need to make things right, even if it costs something on my end, but that would be a clear demonstration. And again, can I remind you that this is a principle that is carried over in the New Testament and taught by Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. I'll just read it to you. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Again, Jesus teaching this same principle of that if we come again to the altar, to the place of worship, whether it's personal worship, whether it's you know public gathering of worship, and Jesus says, if you know that there is something legitimately not right between you and someone else in a relationship, and there is something on your end that you can still do to try and make resolution or, or reconciliation or to resolve that or, or to, to go back and, and to restore if you've erred in any way in the process, that then Jesus says, you know what? It would be better to just stop what you're doing and to go resolve that first, go reconcile that and then come back because in the meantime, Jesus says, there will always be, in a sense, a kink in the hose in regards to the flow of worship and God's spirit working in our lives. It's something that can become an incredible hindrance, and Jesus commands us to do that. And I think many times as Christians, we need to be careful of this. If there are things at times that are legitimately not right between us and someone else, it is good, even to the point of, of avoiding worship until we, the idea is because it's so important, go and resolve things, especially when it's within our power to do it. The Bible says, as much as it's possible with you, live at peace with all men. I realize it takes two to tango, and, and if there's a mutual thing going on, I understand that process. I've been there in that process. But the Bible puts the onus on us as the personal worshiper and says, look, as much as it's possible with you, do your part. Make an effort on your end to do that, and certainly the Bible shows us that's directly connected to our worship. But if there's an area where we know we were clearly wrong, and we've ripped somebody off, owe them money, have done something hurtful or destructive, then certainly that complete responsibility is on us. And God says, don't just say you're sorry and play the game. God says, go and demonstrate it by making restitution and restoration. And the wonderful thing is, look at verse 7. When you do that, when the worshiper would do that, guilt would be lifted off. It says, verse 7, so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things which he may have done in which he trespasses. As we said last time, Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. 
The book of Hebrews teaches us this. And as we look at these sacrifices, we've seen how they picture uh, aspects of Jesus Christ and his suffering and his life and his redemptive work, each one foreshadowing it. But the Bible also tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. So we have this wonderful ministry of Jesus being both our priest and intercessor, as well as Jesus being our sacrifice, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. How much more, if this was available to them, when the priest in that day made atonement before the Lord for their sins, that they shall be forgiven. How much more is that available to us? That our high priest, Jesus, who made atonement with his blood, for the sins of the world once for all to cleanse sin, not just to cover it, but to cleanse it, to remove it from us. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, First John, cleanses us from all sin. And, and I think that is such a wonderful thing. Again, what we fail to realize is that when we trespass and have violations and things that we're just not dealing with and setting right, I don't care who you are and you can play the game as much. Guilt kills you. Guilt robs me. It weighs on us. And, and the reality of knowing, Lord, I'm not right. Man, that just, that is like the heaviest thing to carry around in the world. And God's saying, listen, I don't want you to carry that baggage of guilt around. Whether it's something 20 years ago or something 20 days ago or 20 minutes ago, the Lord says, I want to take that guilt off of you. I want to free you from that guilt so you don't have to live under the weight of that guilt. And he says, no matter what we have done, look, it shall be forgiven for any of those things which you have done. There is nothing that I have done or that you have done that is not forgivable. Forgiveness is available. But we need to seek the Lord in a right way as we approach him to receive that forgiveness for our lives. Chapter uh, 6, verse 8 then moves on saying, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons, and take note as I said, chapters 1 through 5 were kind of instructions particularly to the congregation corporately. But now it seems some supplemental information, a few extra details a lot of it, again, as I said, I know is reiteration, but a few additional details given regarding these offerings, specifically now for the priests themselves to know. This is the law of the burnt offering. And again, we talked about that burnt offering is the offering of consecration, where the entire animal would be consumed. It was an offering of dedicating your life fully to God. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, upon the altar, and all night. It shall burn until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes then of the burnt offering with a fire which was consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. That is, collect the ashes the next morning and put them there. And then he shall take off those garments and put on other garments. The idea is here is sort of, you know, just common clothes, you know, his street clothes. Remember, remember the priests would also have their particular uh, garments that were made for their time of ministry. And they shall with those uh, common garments then carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. So again, the priest, notice, was to be clothed. In a particular way, all these instructions, they seem somewhat tedious to us. But again, what God is doing, as we said before, the book of Leviticus is about holiness, 
which is separating from God's perspective that the common things and the sacred things are not to be casually, uh, sort of flippantly uh, addressed, but that there was to be reverence for God. So the priest here was to wear particular garments for particular things and, and to be dressed appropriately as he served the Lord, even as you and I are to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and clothed first, or Colossians chapter 3 tells us, clothed with that new man, we're to put on the new man every day and walk in Christ rather than to be wearing the old filthy garments of our old life that we might be acceptable in our service and walk worthy of the Lord. Again, the linen garments, probably again, the priests often remember wore linen. Linen kept a person from sweating the way a wool garment would. Very interesting how often we see the priests when they're ministering in their service wearing linen rather than wool because God didn't want sweat. He didn't want the efforts and works of man and wool would cause a person to sweat. And God wants our ministry and service to him not to be out of effort and perspiration but to be inspired of the spirit and, and to just walk in the power that he gives us. And so the priest, often we see them in these linen garments when they're serving the Lord. Chapter uh, 6, verse 12 then continues by saying, And the fire there on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not be put out. And the priests, notice, shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it, and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Verse 13, And a fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall, notice, never go out. Now look at the language there in verse 12 and 13. The, this fire that was to be perpetually burning on the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made. We read in verse 12 and 13, that fire on the altar was to be kept burning and the priest was to burn the wood on it continuously every morning. And I love how verse 13 reads, a fire shall always be burning on the altar it shall never go out. Now the origin, which will happen, we'll see in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, the origin or the institution of that fire when it's first lit at the brazen altar and the sacrifices actually begin after these instructions are given, the origin of the fire on the brazen altar was divine. God himself, it tells us in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, it says that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So when the altar is first lit, the very first time, it's of divine origin. God brings the initial fire. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire, and God lights the fire initially, but notice the priests were responsible to tend that fire continuously to make sure it didn't go out. Their job was to make sure it was stoked and that it was fed, that more fuel and wood was continuously put on it. And that fire, it says, was to be burning on the altar and never go out. Now, I think two things at least are pictured clearly in that. First of all, the continuous fire was needed to picture the fact, number one, that there is always a continuous need for forgiveness and for offerings because there would be continual sin and failure and shortcomings among God's people. 
In other words, there would never come a time where the, the children of Israel were doing good enough where God would say, okay, now you have the priesthood, and so you've got a spiritual advisor, and, and you're starting to get the law under your belt now. You kind of understand it, and you seem to be doing pretty good. So I don't think you're going to fail or stumble anymore. So we can just shut down the altar. No more sacrifices necessary because I, I think you're pretty close to holy perfection. No way. God said that fire needs to burn constantly because people are going to fail repeatedly and continuously, even if they have the law, even if they know the law, even if they have good priests that are instructing them in the ways of the law and being examples for them and leading them and praying for them, God said people are going to fail constantly, repeatedly. And that's such a reality for us. You know, we fail continuously, but how wonderful that the blood of Jesus Christ now who was the one who the fire of God fell upon as Jesus became the ultimate sin offering, that's what our continual cleansing is from. And we can go to Jesus and plead his blood continuously despite our constant failures because of the sufficiency of work. And I think the second thing that continuous fire on the altar that was kept burning and never go out pictures is I think it's a picture of how we need to continuously maintain fellowship and worship with the Lord. Again, the priest, notice, every morning was to keep putting wood on that fire. If the priest didn't keep putting wood on the fire, what do fires do if they don't have wood? That's not real complicated. There you go. All right, let's make sure you're still with me here. Fires go out. <laughs> fires diminish, and they'll actually go out. So when you keep putting wood on a fire, it keeps it hot. It keeps it burning and the warmth of it continues, it's productive, its purpose is being utilized. And again, it's a picture of, again, the altar in our lives, our personal altar, our worship, our fellowship with the Lord, our communion with the Lord. We are responsible every day, morning by morning, evening by evening, day by day, to keep in a sense, if you understand what I mean, putting wood on the fire. And, and coming to the altar of the Lord continuously and making sure that we keep, again, where's the fire of God come from initially? From Him. He starts it within us. We can't, there's no divine spark within me. But once God begins and the fire of God, you know, begins to burn in our heart, you know, we even use phrases as Christians, don't we? Oh, I, I, I used to be so on fire for the Lord. Well, what happened? It wasn't God's fault, was it? We let it go out. And, and, and the Lord's saying to us at times, listen, you've got to tend the fire. You need to put wood on the fire. You need to make investments, being in the word, putting a priority on worship, having a measure of personal discipline in regards to our worship life and our fellowship and communion with the Lord. Again, I just, I love the language. It speaks so personally to me. A fire shall always be burning. God wants us to always be burning, that our personal altar would be hot with fervency and zeal for the Lord, and that we would never let that begin to diminish and never go out in our lives. Verse 14 then gives us some more instruction about the law of the grain offering, which remember was their a dedication of their service to God. They could bring a portion of their crops from the field to dedicate their service to the Lord as a form of offering. And notice verse uh, 15, as they brought that, a handful of what they brought of fine flour was to be burnt on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. But the remainder of it, Aaron and his son shall eat with unleavened bread shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat it, and it shall not be baked with leaven. 
I have given that as a portion, God says, of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering, and all the males among the children of Aaron, the priesthood, may eat it. So we see this, as we've seen before, this repetition of how a portion of the offering that was brought to the altar in their sacrifices to the Lord, that a part of it was kept aside. God had built this in to take care of the priesthood and the Levites, the ministers of the temple and the sanctuary, that they were compensated for their services and their duties. But take notice what's taking place here in these verses particularly, that that as they came there, a handful, a portion was to be burnt. The remainder then was for Aaron and his sons. But look at verse 18 with me. It says, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. This is how they were to, to handle this when it was brought, the grain offering, made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches the offerings must be holy. Now, I have that underlined in my Bible there because this is speaking of Aaron and his sons, the priesthood, who would receive a portion of the offering, a handful they were to burn on the altar as a sweet aroma to the Lord, and then another portion of it they were to retain for themselves, the remainder of it, it says, and they could eat it. But everyone who touched it, it said, God said, must be holy. Again, there's this emphasis repeatedly of holiness. And to me, I take note of here when I look at verse 18, that there was, in a sense, a need for personal holiness among those who were engaged in God's service. God says those who touch the offerings to the Lord, those who touch the things of God that are a part of my worship and the tabernacle gathering of my people at the altar of God, he said that those who touch those things and have their hands upon them to handle them in any way, God says there must be a personal holiness in their lives. And I like this because I think it's a vivid reminder of how there is an important issue of personal holiness in the lives of those of us who want to serve the Lord. That we would be, as 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, cleansing ourselves to be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. It is important that if we're going to handle the things of the Lord, be engaged in God's affairs, that we have clean hands and pure hearts and that we are vessels of honor, and that when we're handling the things of the Lord, that we are a pure and a sanctified vessel, keeping our lives holy, keeping our lives pure. Are we ever going to be sinless? Certainly not. But there should not be grievous hypocrisy. There should not be things that we're doing privately when we're still performing God's works publicly. That shouldn't, that, that shouldn't be taking place in God's servants. Such an important thing. One of the real critical issues, I think, many times of being used in, in a healthy way of the Lord is just being personally consecrated to Him. Our dedication, our personal giving over to the Lord. You know, when we want to try and serve the Lord and live in hypocrisy, that's, it's something that's very detrimental. It, it dishonors the Lord. It defiles the things of God. And here God called for personal holiness among the priesthood. Verse 19, then we begin to see the offerings actually of Aaron and his sons. It says, verse 20, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he's anointed one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at night. And it shall be made in a pan with oil. And when it's mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. 
And the priest from among his sons, who's anointed in his place, shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. Notice how it was to be given, though. It shall be wholly burned. Again, verse 23, for every grain offering from the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Now take notice of the distinction there. When the congregation and the people of Israel brought their offering to the altar, a portion of that was prescribed by God to be partaken of and eaten as food for the priest. But when the priest, notice, who were sinful like everybody else, they were men of flesh and men of weaknesses, whether it was a sin offering or a grain offering or a peace offering or a burnt sacrifice, when they brought their offerings, God says that a portion of their own offering, when they gave of what they received, again, notice, everyone was giving, they received, but then they also gave of what they received, and that should be the pattern, that all are giving, whether those serving or... or and what, he says, notice, they were not to eat that portion. They ate a portion in the other way when it revolved around their ministry, but in this sense, they were not to partake of any of it. And I see in a sense here the Lord saying, listen, there should be no personal gain or personal profit when you're coming as just a sincere worshiper of the Lord. You're giving completely. You're giving in worship. You're not looking to get something back. You're not looking to worship in a way whereby you might receive something. They weren't to be in it for personal gain and benefit. And as I look at this, I think of what a challenge that is for us because... You know, when we approach the Lord in personal worship, not in ministry, this is the personal worship of the priests here. God says, look, I don't want there to be any personal benefit or agenda that you're looking to get out of your bringing an offering of worship to me. And I think it's a very good reminder because a lot of times when we come to worship the Lord, and I understand, listen, please hear me out. The Bible says that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And I know that when I worship the Lord, it does me well. And I benefit the reciprocal benefit is I get refreshed and encouraged and, and ministered to and the Spirit of God touches me. But, but worship is not for me. Worship is for the Lord. I don't worship the Lord for what I get out of it. I worship the Lord to give him what he deserves because he's worthy of worship. It's a sacrifice of praise. And it shouldn't be, well, I'm going to worship the Lord because I need encouragement. I'm going to worship the Lord because he commands me to worship him and he's deserving of my worship. The wonderful thing is, is that God's so good when you're in his presence and you worship him, you do get encouraged. But there should be a right motivation and a purity of our heart in the way we go about that. Verse 24, it goes on to say, and the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord, its most holy. And the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. Again, the priest could partake of this. In a holy place, it should be eaten in the tabernacle of meeting. And everyone who touches it must be holy. And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. Again, God was making a an impression on their hearts, as we've talked about before, of the reverence for blood, as we'll see when we get a few chapters ahead where God says, I've given you the blood to make atonement for your souls. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So as they sprinkled the blood around, if sun got on their garments, uh, they were to wash it, but notice, in a prescribed way. They were to wash those garments in a holy place when they would actually do that. Verse 28 says, But an earthen vessel in which it's boiled shall be broken, 
And if it's boiled in a bronze pot, it shall both be scoured and rinsed with water. And all the males among the priests, again, may eat it. But no sin offering, of which of any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting, to make atonement in the holy place, shall be eaten. That shall be burned in the fire. Now, again, they were to break the earthen vessels if they boiled the uh, offering in that. Again, it was porous, so it could absorb things. If it was a bronze pot, they could just scour and wash it out differently. But as we look from verse 25 down through verse 30, there's one instructive thing I think we see in this here regarding, again, the sin offering. That when the worshiper brought his sin offering, remember in the peace offering, you could eat a portion of that. You shared a meal with God as the worshiper. But in the sin offering, God says here that verse 26, the priest who was receiving the sin offering and making atonement for forgiveness, they could partake of the sin offering to eat it. But the worshiper, we read in verse 30, it says, for the worshiper, that sin offering shall not be eaten. They were to refrain from partaking of the sin offering when it was brought. And I find here a beautiful picture in the sense, the priest making atonement for sin, they partook, but the worshiper who was coming to be forgiven of sin, they were to refrain and have nothing to do with the sin offering. And as I look at this, it's a reminder of me, is that not a picture of how Jesus, as our high priest, he takes our sin, he embraces our sin, he absorbs our sin as our offering and as our sacrifice, and he says, and, and for you, I want to make sure your sin is removed from you. I don't want your sin to be anywhere near you, around you, or upon you. He says, I'll take your sin and I'll ingest, in a sense, and let it completely be absorbed by me as your high priest and sacrifice, but I want to remove that sin from you in the fullest sense. And what a beautiful thing the Lord does for each one of us. In that way. Now, chapter 7 is a lot of reiteration. We'll just kind of glance at a few things uh, together here in this chapter before we close up. Verse 1 says, Likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering. Again, as we talked about before, in the place where they killed the burnt offering, they were to kill the trespass offering in the same place. And again, a very similar protocol to sprinkle the blood around the altar. Verse 6, again, every male among the priests could partake of that it shall be eaten in a holy place and the trespass offering is like the sin offering there is one law for them both the priest who makes atonement with it shall have it and the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering the priest shall have for himself notice the skin of the burnt offering in which he's offered now very interesting in the burnt offering the priest remember the burnt offering the entire animal the whole carcass was consumed because it was a picture of dedication and consecration to God. Lord, take my whole life. I don't want to keep anything back. And the whole animal was burned. Here, it tells us another interesting little insight that the priest in the burnt offering got the skin or the hide of the animal. <laughs> what, what is that? Well, I don't know. Maybe they're making coonskin hats and stuff like that. I mean, skin was good for some purposes. You could use it for garments and tents and so forth. There are some commentators and Hebrew scholars who see in that, verse 8 there, an allusion all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Well, remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned and they had a sense of their own guilt before God, remember what they did? They covered themselves with fig leaves trying to hide their guilt and shame because they were aware that they were guilty. And it says what? That God took away their fig leaves and covered them with animal what? Skins. 
The very first blood sacrifice was made by God. God was the first one to ever institute the substitutional and sacrificial death of an innocent substitute. And here some see an illusion, a, a, a picturesque throwback to that very thing here as Jesus ultimately becomes our great high priest. Verse 11 says, This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which we shall offer to the Lord. Again, the peace offering was that fellowship offering. We talked about that in great detail where they would come to God and, and they would eat a portion. The priest would eat a portion. Uh, and then they would also burn a portion to the Lord. And the idea was like having a communal meal. It was like a, a holy barbecue, a fellowship meal together with God and your family and other worshipers. And there were different reasons you could come and bring this peace or fellowship offering. Verse 12 says, if it's a thanksgiving offering, then he shall offer it with a sacrifice of thanksgiving and 11 cakes mixed with oil and wafers anointed with oil or cakes of blended flour. So again, if you just had a sense of gratitude in your heart, God just, Lord, you've been so good to me or you blessed in this way or you, you came through in this situation and you just had a heart of gratitude. So Lord, I just want to spend time with you and worship. So you could come out of just the gratitude of your heart to just fellowship and sit at God's feet and eat this meal with your family and other worshipers. Verse 16 says, or if it's the sacrifice of his offering because of a vow. So you could also do this to kind of seal a vow in the same way that when a married couple seals their wedding vows, they you know they celebrate with a reception and, and have a meal together. So maybe if you're making a vow to God, you could partake of this meal together, Lord, as a way of just, I want to confirm my intentions here or a voluntary offering. But it shall be eaten, notice, on the same day that he offers the sacrifice, but on the next day the remainder of it may be eaten, but the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice, verse 17, on the third day must be burned with fire. So as they had the animal and they brought it, notice, they could partake of some of it the day it was offered. Some of it they could leave over till the next day, you know, like all things, just like pizza. A lot of times pizza tastes better the next day, you know, kind of the second day. It's something about it tastes better than the first day you get the thing. God says, okay, that's fine. Again, there was no refrigeration in this day, keep in mind. So God says, on the third day, don't touch it. On the third day, do not partake of it. You could not eat the food if it was left over from the third day. Instead, verse 17 says it must be burned with fire. It had to be completely destroyed and consumed. Now, again, notice the fitting picture here. On the third day, there was to be no longer any representation or, or, or any evidence of death left among the remaining sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? On the third day, there was to be no more evidence left of the sacrifice and Jesus, our great sacrifice, on the third day rose from the dead and there's no longer any evidence of him being dead, but there's continuous evidence of him being alive. So again, in all these things, you realize as they're just going through this, you have to wonder if they're much like us when God tells us to do things, they're thinking, Lord, why this? Why that? And Why do we have to do this this way and that way? And God from heaven is looking down saying, oh my goodness. If you had any idea what's in my heart, if you had any idea of the fullness and the completeness of what, and as God's doing these things and watching the people participate in these obedient ways, his heart is being ministered to because from the foundation of the world, 
the life and death and sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ had always been present in the heart of God and he was longing and looking forward to that day in an incredible way. Look with me down in verse 22 in our chapter here. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat uh, of ox or of the sheep or the goat, and the fat of the animal that dies naturally, the fat of what is torn by wild beasts. So the idea here is roadkill. Just put it simply, if you find it. It could be used, notice, in any other way. So you could take the animal skins or, the again, the fat uh, of animals was good for fuel. They would use it for purposes. God said, you can do that, but you shall no means eat it. For whoever eats of the fat of the animal, which men offer as an offering made by fire of the Lord, that person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Again, as we talked about last time, the fat was to be given to the Lord. It protected them hygienically. It was healthy. And there was a part of it, as we talked about, that created that fragrance and giving of the best unto the Lord. Verse 26, Moreover, you shall not eat any of the blood in all your dwellings, whether of bird or beast, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Again, God giving them reverence for the blood. They were to bleed out their animals sufficiently. We see this pattern continue through the scriptures. It was a part of the sacrificial system and a part of God reminding them that, again, as the Bible says later on, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God says, and I've given that to you to make atonement for the soul. So God didn't want them partaking of it. He wanted them to have that reverence for the life of, a, of, a, of another creature and to realize that that blood was special, it was precious. It's what God gave as an atonement for the soul. Now, look with me in verse 30, or verse uh, 29, excuse me. The Lord says, speak to the children of Israel, saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands, now watch this, his own hands shall bring the offering made by fire to the Lord with the fat and the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering. So imagine that, God's into the wave. There you go. Sorry, just keep a few more minutes, keeping you alert there. Verse 31, and the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons and also the right thigh. You shall give to the priest and the right thigh was to be used for a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and of the fat shall have the right thigh for his part, for the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, I've taken, God says, from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons of the children of Israel by a statute forever. And this is their consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord when Moses presented to the minister to the priest. And the Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generation. So as we come to verses 30 and 31 and 32, we now have this new mention, first time we see it, of the wave offering and the heave offering. And so the wave offering was to be used with the breast of the animal offered. The, the right thigh was to be used for the heave offering. And again, Hebrew scholars tell us that what's being referred to here, that the wave offering was then they would take a portion of the animal meat and they would actually go horizontally back and forth like this 
sacrifice before the altar as a wave offering before the Lord as they were presenting it. The heave offering, Hebrew scholars say, they would do the exact opposite. They would lift it vertically up and down like this before the Lord as they presented it to him. Now, I hope visually within that you see exactly once again what they didn't realize, but God looking down from heaven with tremendous sense of pleasure in his heart, was watching as they did this wave offering and this heave offering before the Lord, and God was saying, the cross. There it is again, the cross. Back and forth and up and down, making cross. And isn't it interesting? We have people today among religious circles who do this to this day still, the cross. And, 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 and God was looking upon that and saying, yes, that's ultimately what I'm looking down to. Ultimately, I'm looking to that because that will be the greatest offering that would make atonement for the sins of the people. You know, some even look at this and picture the agony of Christ in the sense of, again, as he's pinned to the cross, that as his back has been scourged and bloodied and it's exposed and against the wood, that Jesus would no doubt have been moving his uh, scapula and back area back and forth trying to just find some sense of comfort as he tried to keep his back up off of the cross and at the same time as the spike was driven through his feet we know that Jesus multiple times would have in crucifixion pushed against that bottom spike to lift himself up vertically to be able to breathe because of asphyxiation setting in where you in you would intake air but you couldn't exhale unless you pushed up to release the pressure off the diaphragm, and that's why Jesus spoke, remember, seven times he uttered something from the cross, and seven times only, because he had to push up on that spike. And some people even see in this a, a reminder of that, the agony of Christ and what he suffered as he was, in a sense, dying for us upon the cross. Look at verse 37 and 38. It says, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering and trespass offering of the sacrifice of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel, notice, to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And the day in which, notice, he commanded, take notice of that word, please, he commanded the children of Israel. Let's read it for ourselves. He commanded the children of God to offer their offerings to the Lord. God commands us to offer our offerings to him. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews before we close. I want to read you a final verse. Hebrews chapter 13. As we prepare to enter back into worship, the Bible tells us this. Hebrews chapter 13. Again, Hebrews right between James. If you get James, go to the left. The last chapter, Hebrews 13 says this. 13.15, regarding Jesus. Therefore, by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer, what does that say? The sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name.